Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Amy Goodman is a host and the executive producer of Democracy Now!, a daily, independent, unembedded, award-winning news program broadcast on Pacifica, NPR, PBS, satellite television, and college, campus, and community radio stations around the world, including CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph, Ontario. A widely renowned, respected, and dedicated journalist, Goodman is also a New York Times best-selling author whose latest book is entitled Democracy Now! 20 Years Covering the Movements Changing America. Amy Goodman is going on a speaking tour which brings her to Canadian cities, including a lecture and discussion at the University of Guelph's Rosansky Hall on Sunday, October 1st, 2017 at 2 p.m. Amy and I had a conversation recently about the state of her country and recent events, the actions of her president, protest and resistance, what draws her to work, what gives her hope, and much, much more. Sponsored by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, Granddad's Donuts, and HelloFresh Canada, this is Amy Goodman on the 352nd episode of Creative Control with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Amy. How are you? Hi, Vish. It's great to be with you. I can't wait to come to Guelph. Yes, we're very excited to have you in Guelph. Uh, where are you in the world today? Well, today I'm speaking to you from New York City, and uh, I'm headed to Paris to speak at a UNESCO event on Thursday. And then, uh, oh, from Winnipeg to Halifax to Guelph to Toronto. That's the weekend, next weekend. <laughs> well, with all this traveling, how do you find it? I assume it's exhilarating. Are you enjoying it? Well, mainly I'm here in New York, but the travel is about covering critical issues of the day, like being uh, in Houston after Hurricane Harvey and taking a toxic tour of the Houston Ship Channel. I mean, that hurricane hit at the epicenter of the fossil fuel industry in the United States, in Houston, the Petro Metro. And it's really important, whether we're talking about Hurricane Harvey or Irma or Maria or Jose. I don't know who names these hurricanes, but some are suggesting they should be named Hurricane ExxonMobil, Hurricane Rex for Rex Tillerson, former head of ExxonMobil, right. who's now the Secretary of State. But it's really important to understand they don't affect people equally. They may drown homes rich and poor, but the question is who can recover from them? I was just speaking with a Goldman Environmental Prize winner, a leading environmental activist from Port Arthur, Texas, where the largest fossil fuel petrochemical plant in North America is, uh, which is owned by Saudi Arabia. It's called Motiva. And he said in Port Arthur, where they were flooded heavily, people who left their homes have now been evicted. Hmm. So 
those in power using that power in a time of disaster um, to get things done they've wanted to get done in the past, whether we're talking about companies releasing toxic waste into the land, water or air. Um, and we're talking about at a time of the um, era of Trump, where already, without the hurricanes, the Environmental Protection Agency is eviscerating itself, is trying to roll back environmental protections in all of these places, mm -hmm. from Texas to Florida, which are already heavily deregulated states. Yes. I mean, this is a, a this is a, a quite the wake up call in terms of, uh, you know, displacement for people in terms of uh, uh, bureaucratic cruelty. Uh, what are you learning as you go to these places? What kinds of stories are you hearing from people? I, I, I've heard them on your show, but from your perspective firsthand, what are you taking away from these experiences? That these are showing us the fault lines. Um, they are showing us already in these extreme circumstances what people face every day. And you add to that what, you know, some people are calling Hurricane Trump, where you have these catastrophes that are happening that you can't call fully natural catastrophes because right. hurricanes, while you can't attribute one to climate change, their intensity, their frequency, we certainly can to sea level rise, warming planet, etc. But on top of that, you have the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump, going to Alabama this past weekend going to Huntsville, Alabama, not far where decades ago the governor, George Wallace, gave his speech uh, for his inauguration about segregation forever. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he goes to Alabama to his ever-decreasing um, base and throws them red meat, talks about going after athletes. You know, we're talking about— um, largely African-American NFL players, often stars, and saying they should be fired if they take the knee. So he's obviously referring to people like Colin Kaepernick, who um, was a 49ers NFL star who has not been able to get a job this year as he takes the knee, That's right. as he kneels during the um, during the national anthem. And this has just launched a firestorm President Trump has gone after these sports players, now just not NFL. We're talking NBA, Steph Curry, um, the Golden State Warriors, who said he didn't want to go to the White House. And now President Trump disinvited him. And uh, LeBron James, you know, another NBA star who is, an, uh, you know, an adversary of Steph Curry, but in this case actually defends him yeah. and says, no, President Trump, you can't disinvite him. He already said he wasn't going. Um, and you have athletes across the country men and women, you know, the WNBA as well, the um, uh, the women's basketball teams, and baseball for the first time, uniting. And you have the traditional adversaries, the owners, a number of them support Trump, and the players joining together. You have Roger Goodall, who is the, um, right, the head of the NFL. Yeah who is not very popular among players, uniting with players on this. And you have the owners standing with the players, arm in arm, you have the players. Some of these teams refusing to go out on the field for the playing of the anthem. And then, remember, you've got the anthem singers, those great operatic stars who go out on the field, young and old, who now are taking the knee as they sing. Yeah. We are seeing a level of revolt in the United States. Some of these players, the ones from... I think the Ravens versus the Jaguars, Baltimore versus Jacksonville, um, were in L London, and they protested there. Um, but you are seeing a level of resistance in this country. I was just at the Global Citizen concert on Saturday night in Central Park. Right. Stevie Wonder sang, and he took both knees, as he said, for America and for the world. The mayor of New York, I got a chance to talk to him and ask, what does he think of what Stevie Wonder did? Of course, he said, I love Stevie Wonder. <laughs> so you have yeah. Stevie Wonder taking the stage in New York and Central Park 
And before he sings, he comes out with his son on the stage and he says, I'm taking both knees for America and for the world. This is spreading beyond sports, going to entertainment, of course, Black Lives Matter, the whole movement, all taking, drawing from that. And before that, you've got the Black Power Salute, 1968, Tommy Smith and John Carlos in Mexico City. Um, so this has a history and, to say the least, a future, this level of protest. Um, and then you've got Andra Day, who also performed a Global Citizen, astounding singer, as she sang the song Billie Holiday popularized, um, Strange Fruit. It was actually written for Billie Holiday, Strange Fruit hanging from the poplar trees, referring to people being lynched. And she said in her book, Lady Sings the Blues, um, she used to run into the bathroom after singing that song and throw up. So, Andra Day, on the stage at Global Citizen, sings this song with such power. And she is wearing shackles on her wrists, handcuffs, broken handcuffs on both hands. Um, you know, Donald Trump has unleashed all of this. Yes, the level of rolling back of progressive legislation is happening at record speed under the Trump administration. But at the same time, the resistance is ever more bold, is coalescing across um, the political spectrum, across, you know, entertainment, sports, people in their everyday lives. Yeah. yeah I want to ask you more about that. And it's fascinating to me that you invoked this performance of Strange Fruit, because this song has been popping up more and more. Uh, I know that Nina Simone popularized that song as well. Kanye West recently made it a primary sample in one of his songs. There is a sense that people have—many people have not forgotten uh, and are not neglecting these issues. But I was speaking with uh, comedian Sashir Zameda recently. She used to be on Saturday Night Live until uh, this upcoming season. She left after the last season. And she made a point that has stuck with me, that all of this—all of this sort of— pain that we're going through, all of the frustration that we're going through, just hearing people like Trump and his ilk speak about these issues the way they are, she thinks it's ultimately going to be good for the country, that up until now, these kinds of wounds have been covered by, by what she described as Band-Aids, and it's time for the Band-Aids to come off and, and these wounds to really be uh, addressed, so to speak, so that we can heal properly. What is your sense of that? Is there is there some good that can come from all of this terrible behavior and, and, and discourse? Oh, I mean, yes, he's ripping off those Band-Aids. That's true. Um, he is or he is ripping off the scars, the scabs yeah, yeah. on wounds that have um, long been festering. There is no question. Yeah. And it is educating even his supporters. I mean, back to the sports teams, these are some of these owners are his biggest supporters, and they are castigating him now. Yeah. They are saying he is um, the level of disrespect he's showing. And, you know, some will broach the issue of outright racism. I mean, let's remember. Donald Trump has spent more time going after these young black athletes than he did going after the torch-bearing white supremacist protesters whose faces we saw in Charlottesville, right? They weren't even wearing Klan hoods, right. though they proudly talk about being Klan and fascist and white supremacists. Uh, you know, their employers could identify them. As Trump calls for these athletes to be fired, uh, has he ever said that? And I'm not saying he should in either case about their employers. Um, he has spent more time going after these African-American athletes than he has of those that spew hate proudly marching in public squares. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's. It's compelling, it's disturbing, and I, I want to return to many of the things that you just uh, discussed, but I, I also want to talk about your book, because uh, this book, Democracy Now!, 20 Years Covering the Movements Changing America, I feel like some of the things we've been discussing thus far are, you know, in a way, addressed in this book. So I want to begin with 
first the motivation to write this particular book that is based on the work of your of your show. Talk about that, can you please? What was the motivation to write this particular book? You know, this book is about 20 years of uh, covering the world. Uh, Democracy Now! It's now actually 21 years. We went uh, on the air as a radio show in 1996 as the only daily election show in public broadcasting in the United States. Um, then it was going to wrap up after that election. But there was more demand for it after the election than before. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though we were an election show, our approach—you know, at the time, most people didn't vote in the United right. States. I mean, we can freely vote, but people didn't. And, I, you know, there's all the obstacles to voting that especially Republicans today are increasingly trying desperately to throw in the way of potential voters because they're deeply concerned that Latinos, African-Americans and others, people who haven't voted, will not vote for them if they register. Right. And so they're making it increasingly difficult. Uh, and that issue of voter suppression is so important today. Um, but at that time, most people didn't vote. I didn't think it was apathy. I thought people were politically engaged. And we went around the states, you know, through the primary system, finding out what people were doing. And after, there was more demand for it than before, because giving voice to the grassroots is something corporate media does not do. The next year, we lost a network, one of the stations that was on several, uh, one of the um, networks. It was in Pennsylvania, because we dared to air the voice of Mumia Abu-Jamal, who on the time was on death row in Pennsylvania, okay well-known African-American journalist, charged with a crime he says he did not commit, which was killing a police officer. So the Pennsylvania stations dropped us, just airing his voice. You know, that is our yeah. job, is to go to where the silence yeah. is. And in that case, he was on death row. I mean, the death penalty, um, so rare in the industrialized world. Most people don't know that in the United States. And he doesn't talk about his own case, but he talks about what it's like to be on death row and what it's like to be in prison. He talks about capital punishment as punishment for those without capital. He talked about father hunger, so many young men in jail who didn't know their fathers. And here he was not able to father and grandfather his family. And he was a role model for so many in jail. But then September 11th happened, the terrible attacks in New York. We were the closest national broadcast to Ground mm -hmm. Zero. And we were we went on television within the next few days as emergency broadcasting. And then stations around the country wanted to run Democracy Now! And we would, at the time, uh, FedEx the video cassettes, because that's what we used mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and soon the FedEx guys were bringing whole garbage bags filled with video cassettes, and the more radio stations asked. And now, 21 years later, we're on over 1,400 public radio and television stations around the United States, around Canada, and around yeah. the world. The issues we cover, and that's what the book Democracy Now! is about, Democracy Now!, 20 years covering the movements changing America, are well, I mean, very much what we're seeing continuing to coalesce and percolate today, the Black Lives Matter movement. I think in the introduction, we talk about the University of um, Missouri students, the Mizzou, a very well-known football team. They were taking on their president and saying he had to leave or they wouldn't play another game. And the university, what, got a million dollars for every game played, black and white players together as they protested racism on campus. And this spread to all sorts of campuses. So we're looking at the history of these movements that are so powerful today. Or, you know, the whole debate around monuments and the Confederate yeah. flag. Um, it wasn't um, uh, the current U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, who was the governor of South Carolina at the time, who uh, brought down the South Carolina Confederate flag that was actually um, waving above the Capitol building in the capital of, Col of South Carolina. It was a young woman named Bree Newsom who went after the horrible massacre in Charleston of nine parishioners um, in Charleston, South Carolina, she went to the state capitol where the Confederate flag flew. The young man, Dylan Roof, who murdered those parishioners, wrapped himself on the Confederate flag. She went the day after, people may remember, President Obama sang Amazing Grace before 5,000 people right. in Charleston. That next morning, early in the morning, she went to the grounds of the Capitol and she shimmied up the Capitol flagpole 
and she brought down the Confederate flag, saying, this flag comes down today. Right. Yes, she was arrested, along with her white colleague and ally, Jimmy Tyson. But that shocked the country. And though it was put back up, uh, very soon afterwards, the legislature voted to take it down. So we're covering all of these movements, giving voice, giving face, giving name to these movements um, as they build. It's the corporate media that, you know, whites them out, that brings you the same small circle of pundits on every issue. You know, the same group of seven or five or ten who know so little about so much explaining the world to us and getting it so wrong. Yeah, and this is something I, I appreciate what you're saying about mobilization and, and how uh, such things can affect change. But I want to return to this media discussion. In the book, you highlight incidents in which significant uh, anti-war protests and, and critical uh, voices who are critical of the government. They're routinely underreported or misrepresented by major corporate media. From your perspective, why have such outlets done this and why have they been able to get away with it for so long? Hmm. Well, um, you know, right now we're in an unusual moment. Uh, where the media has taken on Trump. And this is very rare. They usually wrap themselves around whoever is in power is in the White House. Right. But because Trump has hit them so hard, the co even the corporate media, you know, naming names, talking about the failing New York Times, talking about, you know, failing CNN, etc., they're taking it personally, and they sound a little like democracy now. You know, the media, independent media is essential to the functioning of a democratic society. They're willing to call it out. They're willing to call him a liar and a racist. Yes. And we've not seen this before. But when it comes to a couple of issues, when it comes to climate change, I mean, we're in the midst of these massive uh, catastrophic hurricanes they're doing wall-to-wall -wall coverage, as they should, but they are not talking about climate change or global warming. They will not use those two words. Very rarely do you ever see the mention, and I'm not talking about Fox. I'm talking about on MSNBC, on CNN. It is just astounding. Right. Now, could it be that Every six or seven minutes when they stop for a commercial, they're brought to you by the American Petroleum Institute. I don't know. Um, but that is a fact. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to war, I mean, when President Trump um, uh, attacked the Syrian air base, which then went into, you know, was being used a few days later. Yeah. When it comes to war, the media circles the wagons around the White House. You had even Brian Williams, who is a host on MSNBC, not Fox, talking about the beauty of the bombs. It was just astounding, quoting Leonard Cohen, talking about the beauty of these weapons, mm -hmm. the musician. Mm -hmm. You had President Trump dropping the largest non-nuclear bomb in the world on Afghanistan. I mean, it's the Moab. That's what the Pentagon calls. They call it the mother of all bombs. The Bush developed it under the Bush administration. He didn't dare use it. Obama didn't dare use it. And then Trump, within weeks in office, he drops this bomb with an air blast radius of like a mile. Yeah. Why did he do this? And the media wrap themselves around him, even as he's attacking them. They talk about he became president tonight. Now, is it anything to do with the fact that every six or seven minutes, you know, they break and to be brought to you by a weapons manufacturer or oil, gas and coal industry when they cover climate change or insurance industry when they cover health care? I don't know, but I think there is a relationship between, well, a shared consensus in the power elite, uh, whether they're in the corporate power elite and the corporate media elite. And though it's not direct censorship where, you know, you have the head of a corporation calling a reporter and saying, don't do this. I think that's quite rare. There's a kind of shared consensus. And that's why we need to challenge the corporate media. We need independent media. That's what is what will save us. As a, as a journalist who has decried mainstream media for its skewed and fleeting coverage of, of, of major humanitarian crises and, and other significant world and life-altering stories. I'm curious, because you've been so critical of the media, what does the pervasiveness of a term like fake news, what does that mean to you? 
You know, and that's really just come to the fore recently by, um, you know, put forward by President Trump. You know, at first I was saying, what, is he just talking about lies? And, of course, he, he knows lies. It takes one to yes. know one. Um, but fake news is a specific thing, and I think he knew it well. You know, when they talk about these fake news, basically factories and uh, places where they're actually developing fake news stories, um, we're only beginning to learn the extents of this, yeah. of this. But as an independent reporter for so long, I mean, for example— having covered East Timor. And I think people in Canada know about Timor, which was occupied by Indonesia, armed to the teeth by the United States. Ninety percent of its weapons when Indonesia invaded Timor in 75 were from the United States. Um, the Indonesian military was armed, trained and financed by the United States. Um, we covered this issue for uh, decades. It's a quarter of a century genocide that only ended when the people of East Timor got it to vote for the, got to vote for their freedom in 1999, and then became an independent nation in 2002. What happens in the with the media is they block out the part that connects us to a country like this. In that case, it was weapons that. The U.S. facilitated and Canada helped and so did Britain and other countries by in by getting weapons to the Indonesian military and they can engage in these operations. We have to show that critical link um, silences complicity when you don't talk about, you know, how an army or a paramilitary or vigilantes are armed. Then One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And you're leaving out a key part of the story. That also is fake news. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's really important that we tell the full story. And that's why we need independent media. That's why your radio station, why Democracy Now!, why independent television and radio and public media is so critically important, more important than ever. We need a media without a corporate agenda that's trying to sell you things, you know, with— um, so much to sell and so little to tell. We have to challenge that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I know that the, uh, the motivations are oppositional uh, in terms of whether they're, they're trying to uncover truth or stifle uh, the coverage of, of their lies. But it does seem strange to me that progressive and far-right figureheads are, are now galvanized in their criticism of the media. I think we all tend to recognize that due to various technological advancements, we've never had as much access to information as we seem to have now. But at the same time, it does seem like a lot more of us have never seemed so misinformed. And I can't help but feel that media literacy plays a role in this. Do you think that the way we engage with a saturated media landscape is impacting our ability to discern and process the content? I mean, maybe the answer is self-evident, but what's your take on that? It does feel like we are, even though we have more access to information, we are the most misinformed. Some of us are the most misinformed we've ever been. That's interesting. There was a title of a book, The More You Watch, The Less You Know. Um, and yes, to a certain extent, people feel inundated. But I think you have to find um, sources, news sources that you trust. And it's really important and that's, you know, something we take so seriously at Democracy Now! Facts matter. You don't get to choose your own facts, President Trump, right? You don't get to uh, say climate change is a hoax um, because when they deny 
actual facts. Like, you don't get to say the earth is flat. You but people, can say but people, people do say that now. And when you say yes, you, 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 you... You can say it. You can say it. But, for example, when we're covering climate change, it's as if every time we talked about the earth being round, we brought on someone from the Flat Earth Society for balance. No, we don't have to do that. You know, we go to every UN climate summit. We're headed to Bonn. We were in Cancun. We were in Copenhagen. We were in Paris. And you might say, why waste the fuel? What gets accomplished? Well, what's amazing is the thousands of people who don't necessarily get into these summits, but they go because they're on the frontline communities all over the world, the ones that the countries that are not causing climate change, not the ones that are emitting these greenhouse gas um, um, emissions, but they are most affected. They are the frontline states. They are the islands. They are, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the, the drought. And it is absolutely critical that we tell the truth. There are debates. There are what do we do about climate change. They're not whether it is caused by human beings. And we have to be able to tell the difference. And that's where, you know, we just have to build up over all of these years the faith people have in real news, in, um, in actual substantiated news. And also, it's not just about facts. It's about hearing the voices of the majority of people. Right. I really do think that those who are opposed to, you know, those who care about war and peace, life and death, climate change, inequality, who care about LGBTQ issues and racial justice and economic justice are not a fringe minority, not even a silent majority, but the silenced majority silenced by the corporate media, which is why we have to take the media back. And some have taken refuge in the likes of Breitbart or Infowars because they've become so disenchanted with the mainstream media. How do you sway? I mean, maybe that I, I'm confused about that aspect of things, how you sway those people and try to convince you them. You know, we focus on getting out the voices of people at the grassroots all over. And that is such an enormous job. I mean, when we're talking about the attacks on uh, athletes of color, we bring you those athletes of color. Yes, when we're right. talking about climate change, we go to the places and bring you the voices of the people most affected. I mean, in the United States, it's the fence line communities. They don't say front line. They say fence line because they live at the fences of these massive petrochemical plants. Like ExxonMobil and Baytown, Texas, or any number of these plants, yeah. uh, when their people are fighting uh, for a sustainable economy, we go to North Dakota to bring you the voices of the Standing Rock Sioux, and we show you the Dakota Access Pipeline guards unleashing dogs who are biting Native Americans. Yeah. That is our job, and that's what we focus on. Yeah. You, we talked earlier about uh, your president's uh, behavior over the weekend in terms of attacking basically every professional sports, popular, every popular professional sports league in your country. And I think that his victory surprised, his election victory in 2016, it surprised some people. But in many ways, he does seem to be the logical manifestation of the way many people in America behave, the way they think, and perhaps even the way they relate to things like decency, dignity, and decorum. And what he's proven time and time again, he's also the ultimate distracting and fear and anxiety-inducing vessel that I can, I can recall ever witnessing. Were you actually surprised about his victory, his rise? Does does he not? I mean, we alluded to this earlier. He does seem to represent hard truths about your country that some people just weren't willing to recognize, right? I mean, I think that's a very important point that you're raising, but I don't think it is a— it is a growing base. I think it is a, what we have to challenge. And, you know, you had some people who um, went from voting for President Obama to voting for President Trump, or polls showed that if it was a choice between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, people would have voted for Bernie Sanders. He certainly knew how to address the issue of um, people losing their jobs, people mm -hmm. who felt disenfranchised. Um, and he was a reality TV star, and we can't minimize that. Tens yeah. of millions of people used to watch him. And in a, you know, a 
TV-obsessed culture, um, that really mattered. But I don't think, um, when you look at, for example, what happened this past weekend with, um, you know, not only players, but audiences, teams, spectators, owners, players, all uniting, that he represents the majority of people in this country. And we have to remember that. Yes, some. And he is appealing to an ever-narrowing base, like the young men who march without their hoods uh, in Charlottesville. Yes, he appeals to them. And when he's desperate, he goes to Huntsville, Alabama, and he throws them red meat. And the people who are standing in front of them, some of them applaud. I won't say all of them. There is a vast progressive community in Huntsville, Alabama. But um, he he knows what he's doing. When the media says, you know, he didn't understand the backlash he would face. Of course he did. He generated that. Mm-hmm. And it's intimately connected to an issue you know well in Canada, which is health care, because he may be losing the health care vote this week. You know, it's not over till it's over, but deeply concerned, wanting to throw up a smoke screen around that. So he would he knew he would touch an absolutely critical point in America, uh, to say the least, a place of pain and horror, which is racism in America. And he plays with that. The yeah. horror of that, the um, his racist impulse is terrifying because he is unleashing, uh, ripping open the underbelly of hate in America. Yeah. You alluded to Stevie Wonder earlier, LeBron, LeBron James, Steph Curry, a few other uh, uh, popular culture figures. And when I speak to cultural creators on my show, primarily uh, American ones, I often ask them about the current political state of their country, of the world, and some engage with the conversation. Some some will engage but are sheepish because they feel unqualified to discuss such things. Mm-hmm. But since an unqualified celebrity won the White House in November, it seems that more <laughs> musicians, comedians, talk show hosts, filmmakers, writers, authors, other artistic minds are speaking out more do you suppose such cultural commentary is having a, a healthy influence on the political landscape? Oh, I think it's absolutely critical. I mean, you have comedians like Jimmy Kimmel, who is a white comedian who doesn't usually engage at this level, um, talking about health care and why he cares about it is his son in May was born with heart disease. Right. He took off months. He came back and he said, What is it that this country is offering in this latest incarnation of what the New York Times called the cruelest health care plan of all that they're putting forward this week? You know, Donald Trump just wants a win on this. If you were to ask him without a teleprompter to explain the current version of a bill that's called Graham Cassidy, there is no way he could explain it. That's right. Um, But we're talking about people who, you know, won't be able to be covered for pre-existing conditions, you know, the horror of this in the most industrialized country in the world. So you have this comedian that day after day is going after the uh, arcane points of health care. And then you have um, a politician, uh, John McCain, who is dying of brain cancer. So it takes this kind of, you know, terminal disease in one case, a lethal heart or very serious heart condition in the case of a comedian's son, that may change, you know, what was going to happen with health care in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it is so extreme and dire right now. And then you have the attack on immigrants. We haven't even mentioned that. And it's absolutely critical. You know, President Trump, when he feels the prosecutors closing in on him, you know, uh, announcing the end of uh the end of a program in the United States called DACA, which guarantees that 800,000 young immigrants can live and work and study in the United States legally. And he just (laughs) announces he's ending it. Anything that is related to Obama, and this goes to the issue I, I also do believe around white supremacy and racism. He is trying to erase. Right. Um, right. And we it is really important that people in the media call this out, but also provide a forum for people to speak for themselves, not your typical pundits, people who aren't so practiced in a nine second soundbite in the media, but describing their own experience. There is nothing more powerful than that. Yeah, I agree. And and we've talked a little bit about various people's motivations 
uh, for the work they do and the way they behave. I, I don't know this about you. What exactly inspired you to become the journalist you are today? Well, you know, I when I was in junior high school and high school, I was active on um, in our newspaper doing journalism at that level in junior high school, but holding those in power accountable. In that case, it was the principal. <laughs> and then it's just moving to a bigger stage, right? It's the president. But understanding that it is a means of achieving social justice and how important that is. Um, my father was a doctor involved with physicians for social responsibility. He was the person you saw in railroad stations in New York. Um, the poster that uh, where he was wearing a white jacket and um, and in the stethoscope there was a nuclear mushroom and it said your doctor is worried I say he was the guy not that you would know him not that most people knew him <laughs> but he sort of looked just like Peter Sellers and my mother deeply concerned about peace and taught women's studies women's history and literature you know voices that are not usually heard from Tony Morrison to Virginia Woolf in local community colleges and um, I was deeply moved by them, by uh, my brothers, by my community, um, as it dealt with the issues of the day, from racial justice to um, women's liberation, and moving on to believing that the media is really sacred. It's the way we come to know each other. If we don't know someone from another country personally, you learn and hear the voices of people through the media. And it has to be through something other than a corporate lens and a corporate microphone. And so tw 21 years into Democracy Now!, um, you know, a station a week is picking us up. I mean, translated into Spanish, into Japanese. Um, how important it is we have the media where we can talk to each other. Yeah. And that challenges the stereotypes and the caricatures that fuel the hate groups um, that threaten us all. You, you might have spoken to my follow-up question then, because given all you've experienced in your work, given all you've experienced doing Democracy Now! as a program in the books you've written, I was curious how difficult it is for you to maintain a sense of hope for the world and the future these days. I, again, I, did you, you sort of spoke to that. Is there? A, can you possibly expand upon that? What, what keeps you inspired? The level of activism at the grassroots, the corporate media denigrates activists. But what can be more noble than dedicating your life to making the world a better place? So when you have great leaders like Rosa Parks, who sat down the bus and refused to get up for a white passenger, the corporate media, yes, they even hailed her when she died, right? She led the... Um, Montgomery bus boycott, which launched Dr. Martin Luther King as the leader of the boycott. Yes, when Rosa Parks died, the corporate media was all over it. And they said she was a tired seamstress. She was no troublemaker. But that's where they get it wrong. Rosa Parks was a world-class troublemaker. She knew exactly what she was doing. She was challenging the racist laws in the South. And that bravery it is so critical that that be appreciated, not just after someone dies, but when they're engaging in this work. And that's what Democracy Now! is all about, a daily grassroots, global, unembedded, independent, international investigative news hour that provides a forum for people, whether it's a Palestinian child or an Israeli grandmother, uh, an elder in the Standing Rock Sioux um, tribe in North Dakota, to an uncle in Afghanistan. When you hear their voices, I'm not saying you'll agree with them. How often do we even agree with our family yeah. members? But when you hear their voices, you begin to understand where they're coming from. And that understanding is the beginning of peace. I think the media can be the greatest force for peace on earth. Instead, it's all too often wielded as a weapon of war. And that's why we have to take the media back. I agree with you. Uh, you often deliver public speeches and deliver lectures. What has surprised you the most about that experience? Well, I am so excited to come to Guelph, um, doing this Canada tour from Winnipeg to Halifax to Guelph to Toronto this weekend on uh, Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, um, because virtual community is great. Um, but to actually get to meet people, 
to hear what people are dealing with, um, what people think are important. You know, uh, after the talk, when I sign books, it's not just about signing books. Anyone can come up and uh, talk to me about what issues they think are important. And then, um, you know, when Democracy Now! broadcasts on your station, as we do on other community and college stations across Canada, you know, we are more well-informed, and we always encourage people, um, you know, email story ideas or suggestions of people to interview to stories at democracynow.org. And if you want to sign up for our daily headlines and news alerts, um, uh, you can do that at democracynow.org. But we are working with everyone in collaboration. Uh, how important is that people define the narrative? And so it is a thrill to be coming through Guelph this weekend um, to, to meet people. And that's what I'm most excited about, to meeting people person to person. There's nothing more exciting. You mentioned some of the larger cities you visited for talks and, and the ones you are visiting uh, across Canada and around the world in the next little while. Does a smaller town like Guelph, Ontario, Canada offer you particular particular insights about the world that you wouldn't get from a larger city? Have you found that when you go to smaller places? Well, you... I'll tell you after I come to Guelph. I'll <laughs> let you know. <laughs> but I can't wait. <laughs> on your current speaking tour, are you focused on a particular topic? We just talk—I talk about the issues of the day. I okay. talk about what we're all confronting, you know, what Democracy Now! is covering, um, how important it is that we have independent media and celebrating independent media in each community. Okay. So it'll be—every city might have a slightly different version of, of a similar topic. It depends what's happening on that day. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. So uh, what's next for you? We've been, we framed this conversation around uh, your program and, and this book, uh, Democracy Now!, 20 Years Covering the Movements Changing America, which was written by yourself with your brother David Goodman and uh, Dennis uh, Moynihan. It's available here in Canada at uh, Shyman, uh, via Simon & Schuster. Uh, but what's next for you, Amy, beyond these tour dates and, and other things? Do you have other projects? Oh, well, I mean, Democracy Now! is... Um, broadcast every every weekday and that hour for us is sacred and how important it is to every day focus on I work with an amazing brain trust of people and um, as we work around the clock, you know, whether we're booking a show and then busting that show because something else happens um, that overtakes what we were covering. And it is just the challenge of every day bringing out these voices. And it is amazing. And the show growing all over every station it goes on means more story ideas that people are sending in from a particular area. And then, of course, being online at democracynow.org, um, people are uh, letting us know about issues to cover all over the world. So that's the great challenge every day. Well, for what it's worth, uh, from on behalf of other listeners, I mean, your, the, the work of your team and yourself is is just uh, unbelievable. And I, I, again, on behalf of whoever is listening, I, I thank you for that. Uh, again, democracynow.org is the primary place for people to uh, learn more about the show. Did, did you want to plug any social media at this point? Where can people get uh, connected? Oh, I mean, we're on Facebook and we're, you know, on Instagram and um, we're uh, everywhere that you are, we hope. And you can let us know if we're not and we'll get there too. <laughs> but Sunday at 2 o'clock, what counts right now is being at the University of Guelph at Rosansky Hall. I'm really looking forward to being on Trent Lane <laughs> and meeting everyone and celebrating CFRU. I mean, that's what counts right now, uh, because local media is critical. It is the place where people first get engaged. And so often a global issue plays out in a local way or a local issue that people are concerned about actually has global implications. So I'm really looking forward to seeing people Sunday at 2 o'clock at, uh, at the University of Guelph. Can't wait. It's my first time in Guelph. Well, we're excited to have you. And uh, Amy, this was a tremendous pleasure. I thank you so much for your time and your work and, and best of luck going forward. Thanks so much, Vish. Oh.
That was the 352nd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Antica Podcast Network and is available on iTunes, Audioboom, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Overcast, among many other podcast platforms. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for or you wish to learn more about me, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control with Vishkana on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter, at vishcreative, or follow me, at vishkana. Listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world on CFRU.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. This is primarily a listener-supported podcast. Please consider supporting the show with a pledge. Visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation and keep the podcast going for your efforts. I'm willing to send you a t-shirt or coming up with some other kind of gift that makes sense for the two of us, just send me a note and we'll figure it out. This episode would not be possible without our sponsors, Pizza Trocadero, whom you can call for pickup or delivery at 519-829-2444. Visit them at trocaderoguelph.ca for more info. The Bookshelf, an independently owned bookstore, bar, music venue, and movie theater located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. Learn more about them at bookshelf.ca. Planet Bean, freshly roasted, fair trade, certified organic coffee. PlanetBeanCoffee.com for more information about them. Granddad's Donuts, located at 574 James Street North in Hamilton, Ontario. Amazing donuts by an independent store. Visit granddads.ca for more information. And to have a whole meal's worth of ingredients delivered right to your Canadian home, visit HelloFresh.ca and use the promo code CREATIVE50 for 50% off your first order. Thank you very much to Amy Goodman and the crew at Democracy Now! for uh, connecting us and making this interview happen, and to my colleagues at CFRU, we listen to uh, Democracy Now! every day. It's a very important part of our day, and uh, thank you to Amy and, uh, and that show for existing, because I learn a lot of true things from that show, and it means a lot to me, and I'm excited uh, to have her in my in my hometown of Guelph. So it's going to be exciting. And again, democracynow.org for more information about the show. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you soon. Goodbye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.